Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, while you do, let me just mention, when we build a preaching calendar for the year, we always try to do a little bit, uh, you know, an Old Testament, a New Testament, a Gospel, a minor, a minor book, several. We have this smattering of things we look to get to, and larger books like Romans or First Corinthians, we break up over years. So last year we did First Corinthians one, one through six. This year we're going to do First Corinthians seven uh, through about ten or eleven. I'm saying all of this because we're starting a series in a chapter about marriage and sex. It's just like. Right off the bat, it's just, and uh, I just want you to know, like I, that wasn't like part of some scheme of mine. It was just the next chapter in the book. Uh, so, in case you're like a visitor trying to figure out what the program is, it was just the next chapter in the book. I promise. That said, I'd like to begin by thinking um, or sharing with you a little bit about how faith entered into the life of my family. It happened through my mother's parents. So my grandmother and my grandfather. And when they met the Lord, their lives were called out of some really significant darkness. So that side of the family was extremely poor and also sort of a slave to many of the vices of life. There was a lot of violence in the homes of both of my grandparents when they were growing up as kids. Uh, Alcohol, gambling, all of those sorts of things. They were Cajun, which is like up in the Northeast is like a a dietary oddity. But down in Southern Louisiana, I mean, they're pretty low folk, you know. And so when, when they came to know the Lord, you might understand this if I shared with you they sort of, they radically rejected certain things that might seem a little strange to you. So there's not a drop of alcohol, never was a drop of alcohol in my grandparents' home. Because they sort of made, just come to a categorical conclusion that 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 is a vice because of their life, what they had seen, what they had experienced. There was not a deck of cards in my grandparents' home all growing up. Because in their mind, just nothing good could come from a deck of cards. The, the belt, spanking the kids. My grandfather could not spank his children. Now, he, he believed in spanking. His wife did it all. But he had endured so much violence as a child that he could not do that. Just categorically, it just couldn't happen. You see, it's a form of legalism, that, but it's sort of understandable. It's redeemed legalism, it's certainly for that, where someone's coming out of something, and I mean, we, we experience this all throughout life. You're coming, you, we all come to the Lord from some place, and we bring with us 
stories of life and ideas about things. And for them, when they came to this place where they're before the cross of Christ and he saved them from it, they sort of made these bold black and white statements about their home, which I know the more I understand life, the more less judgmental I am of it. Uh, Music. The Cajun uh, culture has what's called Zydeco music, which is a sort of Cajun tune. Um, I never knew that because it was never played in that home. They rejected that culture entirely. Even though they were, they spoke French over English. I mean, they were very Cajun. They did not reject the food, and for that I am thankful for. (laughs) Now, you could imagine a family like that, that's coming into the Lord and into the faith, and through it they're saying no to things that had been the source of so much pain and damage and sin. And then you could imagine, whether it's down the street or on the other side of the neighborhood, um, another kind of family who's coming to the Lord and their trip to the Lord, like maybe they're not coming out of the same vices. Maybe they only tampered with these sorts of things. Maybe they drank in moderation. Maybe they didn't really gamble. Maybe, and as they come to the Lord, they, their return to the cross is not some great, bold, black and white reaction to the very things. You could imagine someone who, in fact, grew up, maybe they even grew up in sort of legalism or a guilt-ridden home. And so their path to Christ actually turns out to be a green light on some things. Like someone who grew up not understanding why there were no cards in the home. And when they came to Christ, they realized, I'm free to play cards. The opposite reaction coming in the same direction. You could imagine that both of those families could, in fact, in a really good church, both both have it. They could both be there in a good church. One who's rejecting just as categorically sinful certain things and others who may even be receiving those very same things as part of their liberation in the Lord. That is Corinth. Okay, Corinth was a, was like the sin city of the time. It was known in antiquity of being just a place of vice in uh, the city and certainly in the church, there's a strong, liberated sense of self. There's very individualistic uh, notions of personhood that seem to be surfacing in this. And in the church of Corinth, you would imagine it's a miracle that you would even think a church could be in Corinth. But what actually ends up happening is not only is there a church in Corinth, but it actually takes deep root and grows significantly. It's a miracle of miracles. But it's a a messy, energetic, self-contradictory fellowship of people who are coming out of massive vice and others who are not that sensitized to the vice, so they're still traveling among things without being convicted by the Holy Spirit. And they're all sort of in the same room. And we're sort of, we're, we're sort of crashing into that in the, this, this uh, subject here in the seventh chapter. We've called this series Boundary Lines and Pleasant Places. What I love about that line in Psalm, the Psalm 16 
is that I think that's what the Lord wants to, to do for us is in this question of Christian life, he wants to, for each one of us, like mark his boundary lines that sort of describe for us a good life in God. And the truth is, it's probably a little different for everybody, depending on where we've come from and how we've been, where the Holy Spirit wants to mark us out, to say, Here, here's the good life and here's how to think about it. And, and let's just get into it. Okay. Chapter 7. The very first lines of the seventh chapter are, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So we know there was a letter. We actually know there have been several letters from other parts of the Bible. So 1 Corinthians is not the first letter Paul wrote. It's the first chronological letter of the two that we have. So it came before 2 Corinthians, but there could have been a bunch of other letters. And there was at least one other letter. And here is a letter that he received. So they're writing him with a question. Now the Greek in this section of the letter is just loose enough to give just enough ambiguity that people can form an opinion about what he's saying and then bring it and maybe try to force something in. So some of your translations may read very differently from what I'm going to read, uh, but there is... It's, they're not equally right, okay? There is a better translation. And the ESV gets it just about right. This is what I have. I have in the first verse, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and then I have a colon, which, by the way, is not in the Greek. This is a translational decision. And then I have a quotation mark, which is another translational decision. In other words, the translators think that Paul is kind of quoting the matter at hand. The statement, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is the topic. Somehow, in some way, this idea has arisen that it's good. And Paul may have even said this at some point in time in in a certain context. But the idea here is, is that it is objectively good for a man not to, let's just say, not to have sex. To be celibate. Okay? Now, some of you might have in your translation, it's good for a man not to marry. That is incorrect. That's not what it says. So this idea of not, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations. Some of you might have touch. That's actually the literal. That phrase always means, in every Greek text we've ever found over 600 years, in and out of the Bible, it always means sexual relations. Never means marriage. Okay. What I want to offer you before we dive in is a scenario, a picture to help us appreciate the question because some have chosen to sort of brand the seventh chapter of First of Corinthians as a statement about marriage or single. Is it better to be married? Is it better to be single? And Paul, they're going to say, Paul's sort of going to tout the the virtues of being single and also give the concession of marriage to those who can't manage to be single. Okay, That's what some will say in a traditional view. I don't hold that traditional view. I actually think Paul's trying to teach a deeper idea that we're going to unearth as we go along in in this chapter. But let me offer you a scenario that helps to begin to build the picture. 
I'd like you to imagine being in Corinth and hearing either Paul teach or reading from a letter of Paul, him communicate teaching about sexual immorality. So you, were grew, you grew up in Corinth and you were caught up in a lot of things. And somewhere along the way, the teaching of Paul kind of hits what you know and he, and he describes sexual immorality for you, okay? That's the first sort of piece. Here's the second piece. I'd like you to also imagine that whether through word of teaching or a letter written, Paul communicates with you in strong terms of flesh and spirit. Like life in the flesh versus life in the spirit. This is an example of this. This is out of Galatians. He says, I say to you then, walk in the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay? Things like that are often said. So you receive a teaching on sexual morality and then you re- receive this thinking about flesh and spirit, which by the way, in your time, if you're back then, that was a well-known and understood category. Greek thinking often expressed life as, the, in, as a contrast between flesh and spirit. And some would go so far as to think of the flesh as regrettable or evil or base and the spirit as good and holy and right. In fact, we can think of this. I'll return, I mentioned John chapter one earlier this morning. Notice what Paul does. To someone who would think the flesh is evil, notice what he does when he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And it's what is it? It's light and it's truth. As you go through First John or John chapter one, it's all these things. It's all these things of the spirit. And then he gets to verse 14 and he says, and the word became flesh. He's saying flesh is not just bad. In fact, the best thing became flesh. Okay, but you're growing up in this sort of flesh is, it's just the flesh, right? It's just, just the sins of the flesh and spirit talk, okay? And here's the third thing, that throughout your experiences with Paul in ministry, you observe that he, minister, he administers from celibacy. Like here is this amazing man of the Lord who planted the church and is sort of shepherding the church and he is shepherding from the position of, of a celibate minister. So it's from him you learn about sexual morality. It's from him you learn about life in the spirit versus life in the flesh. And it's from him that you observe he's celibate. And if you sort of threw all of those in the blender and mixed them up, you might come out with a sort of false logic which would sound like this. Sex is the desire of the flesh because that's how you grew up. In your oversexed culture, sex was not intimate. Sex was not covenantal. Sex was not the crowning glory of a committed relationship. Sex was the desire of the flesh. You fed the passions of the flesh. So you come with this conclusion, sex is a desire of the flesh The desires of the flesh are evil. The goal is to embrace sanctified celibacy. This is the scenario that I think Paul's responding to. Are people 
married, in marriage, where the one who's getting holier is, feels as though they need to pursue celibacy. Okay, so with that picture, let's sort of bring this to the teaching and, and it'll flesh out. Okay, so I went all the way through it and then built the picture. We'll give you the picture and then we'll go through it. Okay, let's look at verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And then in verse two, he's gonna sort of give a condition. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. He's saying because of the world in which you live that's sort of rife with sexual charge, And then he gives this principle. And I want to say what the principle is not. He is not saying every man should have a wife and every wife should have a husband. That's not what he's saying. He does not say each man should take a wife. He says that each man should have his wife. Which in this language, now it sounds like a fine nuance to us. In the Greek, it's not not a fine nuance. It's an obvious statement. It's saying every husband should receive his wife sexually and every wife should receive her husband sexually. It's not a teaching about getting married. It's a teaching within marriage. The husband, because of all the immorality, the husband should be able to have sex with his wife and the wife likewise with her husband. There's a mutuality in this. I'll show you another mutuality here. Look at verse three. It's the same idea, just said again, emphasized. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. It's a theology of giving, not taking, by the way. It doesn't say the husband should take from his wife his conjugal rights, and likewise the wife should take from her husband. Her conjugal rights. It doesn't say that. It says give. I, in my own marriage, because I'm, I'm biblically trained, I manipulate with scripture. Uh, and so I have said to my wife, you know, you know, your body's not your own. Which, by the way, doesn't work. So don't do it. And by the way, it's, it's a violation of the principle here. I'm taking. I'm not giving. Okay? There's nothing in this scripture, nothing in this teaching that leans or infers towards coercive or abusive taking. It is about free giving. Actually, the teaching is deeper and, and more challenging than taking. It's harder to be a giver than it is to be a taker. We're naturally takers. And I just want you to feel like we're not that far away from the gospel here, okay? The gospel of Jesus Christ is sort of, it seeps into the soil of the text. When it gets to the subject of marriage and gets to the subject of sexuality, this is how it begins to sound. Where in your understanding of the gospel are you taught and led to be a taker? To take what's rightfully yours, to mark something out and grab it and seize it. Where do we find that teaching in the word? We don't. But where do we find in the teachings that are right close to the cross of Jesus Christ 
admonitions and encouragements to give to one another, to bear one another's burdens, right? The things we take are the weights of people on our own shoulders. Here, let me take that from you. We are givers. If someone asks you to walk one mile, how far do you walk with them? Two. If someone strikes you in one cheek, what do you do? You turn the other. If someone steals something from you, what do you do? You offer them more. There is a deep, deep biblical ethic that the people of God are free enough to give. And you find it here. Give to your spouse. They have a right. And look outside the walls of your marriage. Do you see how how oppressively charged and oversexed this culture is? What Paul's saying is, is why would you cause your spouse undue temptation by withholding from them something that only you can give? Here's the third teaching. Verse four. Another mutuality. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Sexual submission to one another. You possess each other. Just to return to this scenario here, right? Paul is saying, your pursuit of holiness through chastity in marriage is confusing the marital union. That's what he's saying to them, especially in a sexually charged culture. You might even say this, that if one were to pursue chastity inside of marriage under the guise of holiness, you might even suggest that this pursuit of holiness is serving as an accomplice towards sexual immorality in the other person. A subtle, unknowing accomplice. Now I want to give you a quick warning here because this is about this time I imagine the the thoughts are sinking in and uh, you know marital bliss in the bedroom is not an easy thing to preserve or experience in marriage, right? It's, it's hard because it's an ex- often an expression of the health of the marriage itself. So I want to be clear about this. Paul is not dealing with every marital issue and reason that happens to show up in the bedroom. He's not dealing with all of it. This is not marriage counseling. And this is certainly not how to improve your sex life within your marriage. That's not what he's preaching. That's not what he's teaching on. That's not what he's writing on. He's actually dealing with a very narrow bandwidth here, which is how, how selfish holiness inside of a marriage, you think you're getting holier and you're actually causing bigger problems to something you've already committed to in the Lord. That's what he's dealing with. He's dealing with the spirit of mutuality in a marriage. So I just, in case you're starting to get a bee in your bonnet, like all charged up or... He's probably not saying what's charging you up. Okay? Let's look at verse 5 and 6. 
Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession and not a command, I say this. I put five and six together. So, by the way, there's mutuality in this too. So he begins by saying, hey, listen, every husband should have his wife, every wife should have her husband. And then he says, and the husband should give himself to the wife, and likewise the wife should give herself to her husband. And then he says, because the wife's body is not a possession of her own, but belongs to him, likewise his body is not a possession of his, but belongs to her. Okay, do you hear if you're going to tie two things together as one, this is, like a, this is like lacing up a shoe. Okay? This is just, you could find this in Genesis chapter 1. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's tying them closer. And he goes on to say, now, there might be an occasion, perhaps, and some Bibles don't even have the word perhaps in it because they, they're because they sort of bring in their own opinion about this, but that perhaps should be there. He says, essentially, the only time you might violate this rule of loving availability for the spiritual sake of the other person in sex, the only time you might put a pause on this is perhaps if you were going to, by mutual agreement, set yourself aside for a time for prayer. And he says, and even this is a concession, not a command. In other words, you don't even have to do this. So if you're in the habit of telling your spouse that you are in a season of prayer from January to December of every year, right? Because of this verse, it's a total violation of the principle. Actually, the rule is regular availability. And the perhaps exception is a momentary pause by mutual consent for the purpose of drawing closer to the Lord. Verse 7. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So by this point in Paul's ministry, we know that he is single. We also understand that he is celibate. And he says at this point, and this chapter is going to build these themes out, he's going to say, hey, I think it would be great if all of us were free from this world of temptation in this particular category. If we could live holy and joy, be joyful in our celibacy, undistracted, but he says, but we're not. And does he say, we're not, because some of you are immature, yet I, through the constant discipline of practice and training, have arrived at this point? Is that what he says? No. He says, it was a gift given to me. It was a gift. How do you earn a gift? You don't. Right? If you bought it, it's not a gift. And if you earned it, it's pay. So 
the word of God exhorts us towards the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, these things, fruits we ought to strain for, gifts we joyfully receive. Paul's saying, hey, it'd be great if everybody could be like me, but God gave me a gift here. If it's not your gift, don't strive for it. God gave you a different kind of gift. Some people will say something like, well, that person has the gift of singleness as a nice way of making them feel good about their singleness. Someone could be single and not have this gift. And Paul would say, well, then you should get married. This is not a, this, this is not a teaching saying single people should pursue the, life, the Lord in, in a perpetual state of celibacy. Rather, people, and this is going to be a, a following teaching, people ought to observe how the Lord has made them. And if you have been given, if you arrive to a place in your life where inside of marriage you realize you have the gift of celibacy, it's not to be practiced beyond the extent of your spouse's desire for you. If you don't need it, that means you don't ask for it. It doesn't mean you don't offer. Does that make sense? Okay. We're drifting towards application, which at some level I think might be a little difficult because in one way I think many of you probably think it's strange I think in large part because we are so over-sexualized uh, in our culture. I think it's strange that you, this is a church with enough people who are wrestling with the notion of, I guess what it means is we're supposed to be celibate. And they're taking it serious enough to pin it on a letter and mail it to Paul. And so may, maybe it feels a little bit anachronistic to you, but I can offer you a couple of examples. Like my grandparents as at least the theme. There is, in my mind, examples of people who come out of, who come out of so much darkness, particularly in this area, that they have no way, they have very, very difficult for them to even conceive of sex as something other than sin when they come to the Lord. Like, if they grew up in a very sinful life or in very sinful habits where sex was only and always a desire of the flesh, they might, they might in coming to the Lord, see it like my parents saw a decks of cards as something that just should be rejected. That's just something that the sinners do. Okay, and Paul's redeeming this. No, it's not. God made it. And it has a place in marriage. Likewise, I think another way of balancing this teaching is to acknowledge that while God, to see that while God acknowledges our weaknesses, so he acknowledges temptation that would fall on us, and he's careful about it, right? That's what it says here in, in the scriptures, that the goal is that we would not be tempted because of our lack of self-control. So while the Lord seems to acknowledge our finite feebleness in our weakness, this is not 
and the fact that he makes arrangements for that in marriage, this does not say, therefore, that you, don't, you, not, you ought not to do anything about your weakness. I'm saying this to the person who has sort of fanning the flames of sinful sexual desire as a habit in their life and then coming to this passage as though this is the antidote. No. Holiness is the antidote. The Lord. We ought not to be, we ought to flee all forms of sexual immorality. So this is not a concession in the sense of because your spouse is just going to do this for the rest of their life, this is how to take care of it. The sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians dealt entirely with sexual immorality. Flee sexual morality. Don't you realize that when you sin in such a way like this with your body, that you're perverting the temple of God? You were bought at a great price, Paul says. So glorify the, God, the Lord with your body. That's what he says in the sixth chapter. So he's already sort of worked through these principles of just how we ought to view sexuality. Now he's saying, in light of that, and because the world is so broken... Don't apply more pressure to your spouse. Here's a third example. I can imagine two people who are married before they meet God, okay, and sort of the way they come together sexually and their their sexual interactions with one another are very much recreational and of the flesh, sort of not redeemed, okay? And then one of the two comes into Christ. And as this person is getting sanctified in the Lord, this person's looking back at how they lived and having difficulty reconciling a lot of that. In other words, there becomes a disparity between one spouse, a holy delta between one spouse and the other. In which case, this person might feel like it's best, it's best if maybe I stop. And, or it gets difficult for this person to understand what intimacy looks like. And Paul is going to say here and elsewhere in this chapter, do not use your holiness, the differential in your holiness, as a way of further isolating that other person. The people of God are givers. I'll close with this thought. I, I just want to end close to the cross. I think of how, I know we're talking about sexuality in the bedroom, which doesn't feel like it's right at the cross. It feels like it's a lot more intimate. But there's things that show up here that I find most true about Christ. Like, for example, the way the Lord sympathizes with our weakness. The way the Lord observes how your life really is and at the same time never lets go of perfect righteousness. This is a passage out of, out of Hebrews that comes to mind. It says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's Jesus what I find, and 
my own life, my own humanity, is when I am sympathetic with someone's weakness, I have a hard time holding on to righteousness, like the righteous truth. I just want to sort of make exceptions for their life. That's, that's natural of the human. Is The more sympathetic we are with someone's weakness, the more compassionate we are, you know, we, we want to, it's hard for us to hold on to the perfect righteous standard. Likewise, I find that when I do hold on to the perfect righteous standard, it's difficult for me to be compassionate. But here's Jesus who at the very same moment has come and knows exactly what it is like to be like us, exactly what it's like to experience temptation in just the ways that we have, and yet he was perfect and he doesn't let go of that. And what God's putting forth in marriage here is, is marriage is a place where despite our weaknesses and despite some of the, the way the world is around us, it's a place where true intimacy can come and be enjoyed. So, so long as this person sees themselves as a gift to the other and this person sees himself as a gift to the other. Are you a giver or are you a taker? And as you sort of aspire to the Lord in holiness, do you find in your life a tendency to be more giving? Let's pray. Lord, as we begin your deeper thoughts, we begin in such a an abrupt place. We pray in faith, Lord, that um, someone here needs to wrestle with this. Certainly, Lord, there can hardly be a spouse in this room who does not understand what it's like to take and to be self-centered and self-righteous at the same time. And so, Lord, help us to detect, whether married or single, to be able to detect those tendencies, Lord. Self-righteous taking. But in particular, Lord, we do pray that in the marriage unions in this church, that you would work a way out that would tighten their union through their sexuality. You made us to be together, Lord. And so certainly you understand it fully. And you're on our side. And so we pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.